And uh, we're continuing a little series that we started last week ago called Law, Love, and Liberty. So if you've got a Bible with you, open up to Romans chapter 14. We spent the last couple of weeks in Romans chapter 13. And then for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be here in Romans chapter 14. So I hope that you can turn there. Romans 14, I've entitled the message this morning, as you see there before you, uh, in your notes, you can always down that, uh, download that from, um, from the website, but it's called Loving Your Brother is Giving Him Liberty. Loving Your Brother is Giving Him Liberty, Romans chapter 14. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12 this morning as we look at this important concept. So look at Romans 14, 1 through 12. Paul writes this, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But do not quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Do not let the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will stand, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Let's pray together. Father, we need your help this morning as we dive into Romans chapter 14 and discover what you meant when you wrote by your Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul this, this subject about Christian liberties and what it means to not pass judgment on one another and what it means to welcome one another, whether we're weak or whether we're strong, whether our consciences are sensitive to a certain thing, or whether we have freedom in that area, I pray that you would allow us this morning to come to a deeper, more balanced, biblical understanding of this topic in a way that would help us to love you and to love one another in a way that would glorify our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Well, the story is told of an old farmer who loved to fish and this particular farmer also served as an elder in his local church and had been doing so for the past 30 years. When the young pastor convened the elders' meetings, the old farmer would sit for long periods of time and say nothing. 
He would listen to the endless discussions about seemingly weighty, but sometimes rather nitpicky matters. And eventually, when asked his opinion, he would simply say, small fish. In response to only a very few issues, the farmer would say, big fish. After several weeks of this behavior, the young pastor finally worked up enough courage to ask the old gentleman what his comments meant. And the old farmer said this, son, when I catch a fish that's too small, I throw it back. I only get excited and spend my time on the big fish. Well, I trust any fisherman knows that's kind of true, right? You want to throw back the little fish, you just keep the ones that, that, that you can mount on your wall, right? Just the big fish. And the moral of the story, of course, is that Christians are sometimes skilled at catching small fish. And we like to sometimes catch small fish and put them on our wall and say, look at this fish. Look at this. This is so important. Check this out. And your little fish weighs like a pound. And what I'm saying is we got to be careful as Christians that we don't let the small fish dominate our conversation, that we don't let small fish and particulars in the area of gray matters begin to dominate who we are as Christians and what we believe as a church. We need to be the kinds of Christians that focus our spiritual energy on big fish. Anything less than that makes us ineffective as fishermen of men. It's God's word that matters, not popular consensus. It's souls that we're worried about, not the latest political debate. It's heaven and hell that should concern us, not the speculations of man. Now, I don't believe that the things that we've been discussing over the past two weeks are all small issues, small fish issues. There's definitely been some big fish in there. But if we're not careful, again, we could let too many small fish in and take over our conversations. And so we're in the middle of a series on law, love, and liberty, Romans 13 and 14. The first sermon I gave you a couple of weeks ago from Romans 13 gave you principles about how to understand God and government. And we looked at how governing authorities have been established by God. We discussed how whoever resists those authorities will receive judgment. We talked about how rulers don't punish good conduct, but evil. That the government is to be God's servant for good. That it's necessary to be in subjection to the governing authorities and how Christians should pay taxes because rulers are ministers of God. And so in general, when the government is acting as the authority instituted by God, every person is to be subject to that governing authority. In fact, whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist a government that is acting appropriately within its jurisdiction will incur judgment. You must obey traffic laws. You must obey building codes. You must pay your taxes, and to not do these things is a sin. But when the government is not obeying its own regulations, it needs to be held accountable. A tyrannical government is not an agent of God, but an agent of Satan. And I believe that a government that is telling churches that they can't meet together in a reasonable way inside their church buildings 
have gone too far. A government that tells its citizens that they cannot sing together in worshiping the undisputed king of the universe has gone too far. I believe that a government that would quarantine its individuals to the point to where they cannot have small group fellowship, ministry of the gospel together with one another in each other's homes, and to experience that kind of Christian fellowship in a loving way, then I believe that that government has gone too far. And as long as I'm the pastor of this church, we will, at times, civilly disobey in order to exalt Christ. And when I say we're civilly disobeying, I'm just simply saying that even in this moment, we're not exactly six feet apart. Even this morning, we've already been singing to our risen King. Even here today, we are consciously doing what we believe brings more glory to God by fulfilling the higher law, if you will. We are to be captive to a higher law, to God's law, and our allegiance is to that higher authority. And we are free in Christ to gather together as Christians in a way that we can effectively carry out the one another's of the New Testament. And when push comes to shove, we will always obey God over man. And so the first half of Romans 13 is saying obeying the government is obeying the law. But the second half of Romans chapter 13 is saying that loving one another is fulfilling the law. So the question I've been presenting to you is, when we're supposed to obey the government, but we're also supposed to love our neighbor, and if the government is keeping us from adequately loving our neighbor, then I'm going to choose loving my neighbor over obeying the government. I'm also saying to you that I believe that we do owe the government our obedience in every area except when it, they make it impossible for us to keep God's law. The government's authority stops at the church's front door. And I believe that part of our jobs as faithful citizens is to hold our government accountable. You can't just sit back and let the government run roughshod over all of your God-given liberties. We must keep our government in check. But we also are called to love one another. We are called to hold each other accountable. And that's why we need the commandments that are given in Romans 13 verse 9. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. Or uh, you shall not break any other commandment. Uh, Those can be summed up by loving your neighbor as yourself. And love does no wrong to a neighbor. So we looked last week about how the love that God commands is pure. It is sacrificial and it is focused on others and not on self. And it is a choice that you make every single day to love one another. The word agape means to have a warm regard for and an interest in others. It means to practice and express one's love in tangible ways. That's our Christian duty. We want to love and obey our government as much as we can, but we also want to love each other in tangible ways and in a way that would have a heart to help obey God's commands for us to love one another. So that means that we want to love one another whether you choose to wear a mask or not. Last week I introduced the idea that many of us uh, are going to wear masks, and I think that's a good thing. Many of us are not going to wear masks, and I think that's a good thing. And I'm here to present to you this morning that I think the idea of wearing a mask or not is a Christian liberty. It's not something that I believe that God commands that we do. 
when it hinders us from being able to adequately talk with, communicate, share life, and share love with one another. But we also want to have a lot of patience and a lot of grace as different people land kind of in different areas on that. So that's why this week and a little bit also next week, we're going to be looking at Christian liberties because as you've seen the title already of this message is that loving your brother is giving him liberty. That's what loving your brother is. In order to love them, you have to allow them to see and understand things a little bit different than you do. And so this week, I'm going to give you three headings that are principles about loving your brother and about giving him liberty. You ready? Number one. Number one, love the weaker brother. Your first blank there, if you're taking notes, says, welcome the weak in the faith. Welcome the weak in the faith, verse one. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but do not quarrel over opinions. So in verse 1, when Paul says to welcome one another or to welcome the one that is weak in the faith, he is saying that word welcome, he's saying to accept them. He's saying that you welcome them, you accept them, and you receive them as they are. That your goal is not necessarily to change them, to make them think like you or to look like you, but we're commanded in God's word to welcome those who are weak in the faith. It means that we would show them hospitality. It means that we would take them into friendship. It, It would be easy for us to avoid those people who don't think like you and those who don't act like you, and those who land in a different political area or in a different area when it comes to the Christian liberties, or even if it comes to whether they should wear a mask or not, it would be easy for us to start to line up in a way that would have all the people who don't have masks on over here and all the people who have masks on over here, and we start to separate in our minds Christian liberties in a way that we really just want to hang out with people who praise us, not those who challenge us. But notice that this text says we're to welcome the weak brother, the one who is weak in the faith, we are to welcome them. Please notice here, we're not talking about welcoming the world in this passage. We're talking about welcoming the one, verse 15 says, for whom Christ died. For the atonement was shed for those who were called to Christ from the foundation of the world. Those are the people, true Christians, we're to welcome them. We're not talking here in this context about an unbeliever. We're not talking here about someone who's even divisive or disorderly. We're talking about welcoming every Christian, even reaching out to those who are on the other side of any given issue. And Paul uses that same word, welcome, to talk about how when he was shipwrecked on the Isle of Malta in Acts 28.2, we read how the native people showed us unusual kindness and they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. Same word, welcome, is used in Romans 15.7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And so part of the mark of a mature Christian is that we welcome one another's cordially whether we agree with them or not. Christians should always be welcoming, they should always be loving, and they should always be kind. Now verse 1 says, for as one who is weak in faith. The word weak here in this context means to experience some personal incapacity or limitation. That's straight out of the BDAG lexicon, right? To experience some personal incapacity or limitation. That weakness could be caused by fear 
or by caution. That weakness is often used when trying to decide what is the right course of action in a gray area. Now, the Bible is full of clear issues of right and wrong. There's no question about the right course of action in those clear commandments. This would include the Ten Commandments and all the imperatives of the New Testament. But there are many issues in life that fall under what is commonly known as gray areas, like drinking alcohol, smoking or using tobacco, dancing, movies, music, TV shows, modesty in dress, or should Christians practice trick-or-treating at Halloween? That's the big question, right? We all have these questions about some families are going to do this and some families are going to do that. And we're all going to vary to some degree in how we handle so many of those issues. And so when the Bible mentions, like it does here in Romans 14.1, that someone is weak in faith, it means that they have a sensitive conscience that would limit that person's freedom in certain areas. And in this context, in the area of eating meat, that was sacrificed to idols. Romans chapter 15 verse 1 discusses the same concept. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and to not please ourselves. So those who are stronger in their understanding of what God's Word allows and what God's Word forbids need to be patient with the weak and they need to not flaunt their liberties. And to explain this even further, turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So that's turning over to the right, one book, to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And in this chapter, Paul is shepherding the church in Corinth with this whole issue about eating meat that is sacrificed to idols. So look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4. If you've ever been like, man, I've never quite understood that thing about eating meat sacrificed to idols. Should we eat it? Should we not eat it? What's going on there? Please let me explain it to you this morning because this is at the crux of understanding the whole debate about Christian liberty. So 1 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 4, therefore, as to eating of the food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. I'd stop right there. Paul is saying that idols are not real. He's saying they don't really exist. He's saying they are not true gods. He's saying they don't have any power. In fact, the psalmist mentions that in Psalm 115, 4 through 8, talking about idols. He says their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. They have noses, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not feel. They have feet, but they do not walk. And they do not, or they do not make a sound in their throat. And those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. So what he's saying is, the psalmist in Psalm 115, same thing here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4, he's saying idols are not real. They have no power. They have no life. The idols don't have any power except the power that you give them over your lives. Idols are not living, but they are dead. And if you are following a dead idol, you too will become dead just like them. Your idol could be silver or gold or houses and cars or clothes and shoes or sports and recreation or beauty in the shape of your body or your position or status in life. And these are all potential idols and they are all dead. 
We don't worship these things, whether they're concrete or abstract. We don't worship idols. We worship God who is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. And in the twisted pagan culture of Corinth, they thought that demons could somehow attach themselves to meat. And if you were to eat that meat and ingest it into your body, you would have a demon inside of you. And so what the pagan culture taught was you were supposed to take that meat and sacrifice it to one of your idols. And if you were to sacrifice it to your idol, then the demons would be removed from the, eat, uh, from the meat and then you could eat that meat. In fact, two of the main gods in Corinth were Aphrodite, the goddess of sexual love and beauty, and Poseidon, the god of the sea. And the Corinthians believed that they sacrificed meat to these gods and some of the other gods, then that the meat would then be clean and safe to eat. And so that's what they're discussing. Is this right or wrong theology? Paul's saying there is no such thing as an idol. Verse 5, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 5. For although they may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom we are all things and from whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things exist through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And so Paul's saying in those couple of verses that while people may have made up many gods, lowercase g, we know that there's really only one true God, capital G. There's only one God over heaven and earth. There's only one true God who created the world and all that's in it. There's only one Lord, Jesus Christ, whom we worship. Look at verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So Paul here is defining what's going on. The weaker Christian of Corinth did not yet understand that the idols that were in the temple and the idols in the culture were really not real. They had no power. They had no ability. And so because they used to be idol worshipers, they were still, they understood that the, the beliefs and practices associated with eating the meat sacrificed to idols would violate their conscience. And so they felt like if we ate this meat, because we know kind of what's thought about it, what's practiced around it, in this context, they're considered the weaker brother. In verse 8, helps bring the clarity that we need to understand the issue because if you're kind of following the argument, you almost think, well, the weaker brother must be right then. Until you read verse 8 where Paul says, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. So in other words, Paul's saying in this moment, you don't, it doesn't matter if you eat the meat or not. You're no better if you don't eat it. You're no worse if you do eat it because faith is not a matter of food Faith is a matter of the heart. And as long as you understand if you did choose to eat that meat, even though it was sacrificed to an idol, and later, by the way, it would be on sale for half price, so you could get some great steak uh, by eating that meat sacrificed to an idol. And so there was lots of practical reasons why people would do it. But Paul's saying that, look, it doesn't really matter if you eat or not. What matters is your heart. And in verse 9 says, but take care of this right of yours, that somehow it does not become a stumbling block to the weak. So he's challenging the strong. Look, if you choose to eat the meat that was sacrificed to idols because you know that there's nothing really going on there, you need to be careful when you're hanging around 
the weaker brother because you could be a stumbling block to him. And so verses 10 and 11 says, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge, meaning that you understand good theology, who God is, the fact that those idols don't mean anything, if they see you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed the brother for whom Christ died. So the Bible's telling us that it is the weaker Christian who could stumble over the freedoms of the strong. Therefore, those who exercise their liberties should do so carefully and thoughtfully, and so not as to encourage the weaker brother to go against his conscience and to destroy his efforts to honor the Lord because Jesus died for that brother. We're talking here about secondary and tertiary issues like eating meat sacrificed to idols or in today's context, drinking alcohol. And I believe that one possible application of this would be whether you believe you must wear a mask at our gatherings as a church or not during this pandemic. That's what we're kind of putting this in the category of it's a Christian liberty. For one person, they're going to say, look, I have a God-given right and responsibility to practice the one another's effectively. And so in order to do that, I'm not going to wear a mask. A fellow brother in Christ is going to say, yeah, but if we can submit to the government by wearing a mask, and it doesn't really hinder us 100% from being able to talk and interact, then I'm going to wear my mask. And what I'm saying to you this morning is you can do either one. We want you to feel free, the freedom to wear one or not wear one, but what we don't want is people arguing over this issue. And if you look back to chapter 14 of Romans, the very end of it says, but we are not to quarrel over opinions. We're not to be fighting or arguing or engaging in any verbal conflict because of differing viewpoints. One person sees it one way and another person sees it another way, and we don't want to be a church that's going to quarrel over those issues. Instead of quarreling over the issues, we want to welcome he it is who is weak in the faith. Now, I know whenever we talk about this, the person who has the more sensitive conscience typically says something like, well, I don't think it's fair to call me weak. I feel like I'm actually being the stronger one by being super sensitive to what the Bible says and to what, what the government says. And I feel like you guys who say you're strong are really the weak ones. And I just want to encourage you, don't get tripped up in that kind of logic. Just understand the argument like it's made and understand if you have a quote, weaker conscience, it doesn't mean you're a weaker Christian. It just means your conscience is more sensitive to what it is that you're concerned about. I would also say that all of our consciences should be captive to the Word of God. And so at the end of the day, in a perfect world, we would have all the same freedoms because we would be bringing it straight out of the Bible, and yet there is no perfect world. And there is no 100% consensus with all of us seeing every issue to be the exact same, which is why as Christians, we could say, hey, you're no better if you do. You're no better if you don't. We love you anyway. And by the way, that's not the reason we're together this morning. We're together to love each other and to worship Christ. We're here to exalt Christ and we're here to welcome one another that we would be so friendly and so kind that you would welcome people into your home who have the exact opposite view that you have and that you wouldn't judge them and you wouldn't think of yourself as above them or below them, but that you would have a heart to fellowship together because what you really have in common and all that really matters is that you love Christ together. He's saying all that there in verse 1. 
Now, verse 2, your next blank, says, allow people to be different. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. And so you have one person who believes he can eat whatever he wants, while another person in this context, the weaker brother, is only eating vegetables. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that the weaker brother has to become a vegetarian, all right? So in this context, he's just saying, hey, they're not going to eat any meat right now that's even partially associated with idol worship, so they're just going to stick with vegetables. It doesn't mean that they never have eaten any meat in their life. And, and, and not only that, this concept also uh, about the newer Christian Gentile believer is going on, but there's also a concept here about the newer Christian Jewish believer. So the newer Corinthian Gentile believer is thinking about the meat sacrifice to idols. But the newer Corinthian Jewish believer is thinking about the Mosaic law and the old covenant, which prevented Jews from eating certain, certain types of meat like pork. So if you were a Jew under the old covenant, no, no ham, no bacon. I'm sorry, all right? You can't eat it. And if you're uh, a Jew uh, practicing the kosher diet, no shellfish. So no crab, no lobster, and no shrimp. But in the New Testament, under the new covenant, these dietary restrictions have been removed. And a Christian can eat whatever he wants. In fact, look down at verse 14, Romans 14, 14. I know that I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in and of itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. So if you think it's unclean, it might still be unclean to you because you have a weak conscience and you need to work through that. But in reality, there is nothing that's unclean. In fact, maybe you remember the story of God making this clear to Peter in Acts chapter 10, where Peter is in Joppa, not too far from Caesarea, and he had a vision from God where there was something like a, a sheet that the heavens opened up and the sheet descended and in the sheet were all kinds of animals. And in Acts 10, 13 through 15, we read, and there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. So in that story and that true event of Acts 10, in that context, Peter's like, look, I've never killed an unclean animal. And God is now telling him, don't call them unclean. Those, those animals you can now kill and eat. And so as a new convert in Corinth, whether you're coming out of a pagan background with sacrifice to idols or a Jewish background with meat that used to be unclean, which is now declared clean, you are to appreciate the different backgrounds that people are coming from, and we don't want to have judgment on them, right? We want to allow people to be different. Somebody who only wants to eat vegetables, that's fine. They want to eat meat, that's fine. Your third sub-point says this, do not judge each other, verses 3 and 4, says let no one who eats, despise the one who abstains, and let no one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. So there in verse 3, if you're the stronger brother, do not despise the weaker brother. That's the temptation for the stronger brother is just to get angry at, to despise, to be impatient with the weaker brother. If you choose to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, or if you choose to eat pork and shellfish, don't despise or reject the weaker brother who abstains from eating that same meat. 
And likewise, the person who chooses not to eat the meat should not pass judgment on the one who does eat the meat because God has welcomed him. God accepts you no matter what you eat and don't eat uh, because of, uh, because, you know, because you think that you have to eat a certain food in order to honor God. The new covenant does not give that kind of imperative. It, it, food is a matter uh, of liberty. You can eat what you want. You cannot eat what you want. Salvation is not a matter of food, but it's a matter of faith. And in fact, Jesus had actually already said this in Matthew 15 verse 11. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but it's what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. So Jesus has already said, basically, you can't eat something that would defile you. There's no amount of ham or no amount of shellfish that you could eat or meat sacrificed to an idol that you could eat that would defile you. It's really what's in your heart coming out. That's what Jesus is concerned about. And I, I would just say even a, maybe just a quick note on this about, about food and Jesus saying that there's no food that would defile you. There's a lot of diets out there. Can I just take a minute, shepherd you on this one? There's a lot of diets out there that would claim that they're biblical. Oh, you got to practice the biblical diet, which means you only eat things that are in the Bible. And if it's not in the Bible, you don't eat it. Or you've got to eat only the Ezekiel bread that sprouted. Or you've got to eat certain things. And, and by the way, there's foods that are bad for you. Right now, if you go online, foods that are bad for you, you can come up with a hundred are more types of foods where people will say, don't eat any red meat. It's bad for you. Don't drink milk. I've heard people say, milk is for calves, not for people. So you shouldn't drink it. I'm like, who have you been talking to, man? It's like, you know, of course, you know, it's like people don't eat butter. They don't eat nightshade vegetables. So yeah, I'm going there. Tomatoes, bell peppers, um, eggplants, because they can contain lectins. All right, I'm just saying, be careful. If you have a preference not to eat something for your own food allergy, your own health, you eat a certain food, it causes you pain, by all means, don't eat it. I'm for that 100%. But don't go around telling everybody that this food is bad and that that food is bad because everything that God created was good. Genesis 1.31, everything was good. And not only that, these principles out of the New Testament, there is no food that inherently is bad. I would like to get an amen for that, but it's okay if I don't get one. So uh, now when it comes to processed foods, that's where things change just a little bit. People are going to eat really, really refined processed foods that has tons of sugar and tons of salt and tons of preservatives that could make that food last into next century. Then maybe we could make a little bit of an argument of, well, that's not something God created. That's something man created. So that right there, that's just wrong. All right. And I'm not going to give I'm going to even give you liberty on that one. All right, because I just think that too many times we get too worked up on what you can and cannot eat. And I would say everything in moderation, everything is done out of a heart of thanks. And we shouldn't be Christians who are so dogmatic about what you can and can't eat. You do whatever you want. Just don't go around telling other people they have to do it a certain way in order to honor God. All right. All right. Let me move on to uh, Romans 14. Thank you. I fear a few more amens over there. Romans 14, 4, verse 4 says this. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. In other words, he's saying it's not your job to pass judgment on another person about these kinds of liberties. That brother or sister which you are judging is a fellow servant of God, and it is before God, his own master, who he will stand. In other words, God will be the judge of that individual, not you. And God will 
will judge him for what's in his heart, not for what's in his stomach. And he stands and he falls before God alone. And so we got to understand that God justifies us and he saves us by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, who died for us. So when he judges us, he's judging us to see whether or not we've been repentant, we believe in the gospel, we believe in the resurrection, we've been born again, and that we're able to exercise the liberties that God gives us in a way that would honor the Lord. And we need to understand this morning, again, that many of these freedoms, I believe, includes this idea of wearing a mask. Now, somebody had asked me last week about, well, why did you preach that whole sermon about wearing masks on, off, halfway on your ear? And then you got up and said, but when you go down there, you have to put your mask back on. And, and why does the college have one view and the church have another view? Maybe, let me just clarify that real quick. We believe there's three entities that God's given. He's given the church. He's given the family. He's given the government, okay? The school falls under the government. So the master's university, rightly, is choosing to follow the protocol to the fullest measure that they can by social distancing and wearing masks, even when they're in here for chapel, because they fall under the state. The church, on the other hand, falls under God's word. And so since we don't have to succumb to all the regulations that the school does, we have a few more freedoms, we believe, as a church than you would be as a Christian school, which is why since we're meeting on their property, they've told us that what we're doing is fantastic. While we're here, we don't have to quote unquote stay up full six feet from each other and we don't have to wear masks. But they have asked us while we're down on the lower campus that we would be a little bit more cautious because on the lower campus where it's a little bit more visible in the public eye, they just have asked that we would simply try to wear a mask in order to be a good neighbor and to be a considerate of what the college is asking us to do. So hopefully that's clarifying that issue for you. But as a church, we believe that we fall under God's mandate to love each other. And because we're seeking to obey God, Rather than obey man, that's why we're taking a little bit more of a liberty of you can choose to do it or you can't choose to do it. But what we are going to do is exercise encouragement, patience, and love with one another. That's the key. We want to exercise patience and love and liberty with one another. And so now in verses 5 through 9, Paul moves on from this example of food sacrifice to idols. And he's going to tackle the same concept. Christian liberty in a different way, and he's going to talk about special days of worship. And so I've said that we're to welcome that weaker brother, love the weaker brother, but we're also, number two, we're to love the particular brother. We're to love the particular brother. Your next blank says, be convinced in your own mind. Be convinced in your own mind. Verse five, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. I believe that verse 5 is talking about how some Jews were coming out of Judaism and they were struggling about whether or not they should keep the Sabbath. And they were struggling about whether or not they should keep special days of worship that were associated with feasts which were commanded for them to keep in the Old Testament. And as you know, Exodus chapter 20, the fourth commandment says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord. For three and a half millennia, that's 3,500 years, it was right for people to keep that commandment to worship, if you will, on Saturday and to keep it as a holy day. And the resurrection changed that practice. 
So once Christ came and he died and he was raised from the dead, according to John chapter 20, verse 1, it was on the first day of the week that Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, only to realize it was empty. It was a week later, on the evening of the first day of the week, that Jesus appeared to the disciples behind locked doors. Acts 20 verse 7 says that the church in Troas gathered on the first day of the week. And in 1 Corinthians 16 2, it says on the first day of the week that you're to set aside something to give to the Lord. And so what I'm saying to you is in the New Testament, under the new covenant, the Sabbath is no longer kept in the same way that it was in the Old Testament because in the Old Testament it was observed on Saturday, but under the New Testament and the New Covenant, we observe our day of worship on Sunday because of the resurrection. Now, there's some Jews that were arguing about that and they were like, hey, I just can't do that. I've been pra- we've been practicing the Sabbath since Moses for three, for, at this point, for a little over 2,000 years, 1,500 years, rather, we've been practicing um, the, the, the Sabbath in this way. There's no way we can just change that. So you know what, you know what Paul says? He's like, do what you want. No big deal. If you guys want to worship on Saturday and be Sabbatarian, I don't care. If you want to observe certain rituals and feasts, I don't really care if you do that or not. Just don't become legalistic about it, thinking that you have to do those things because you're no longer under the old covenant, but under the new covenant. So Galatians is all about Paul fighting Judaistic legalism. And in Galatians 4, he says this in verses 9 through 11, but now that you have come to know God, you can turn back again to the weak and worthless principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. So he's saying to the church in Galatia, you guys are going back. We've just given you freedom in Christ. Christ gave you freedom through the resurrection. And now you're starting to go back and be tempted to do all the things that you used to do. And he's concerned. And he even says that to go back to those former old covenant ideas of a particular day and a particular feast is weak and worthless. That's what he says right there, Galatians 4, 9. He said, don't go back to the weak and worthless slaves uh, uh, and become slaves to a legalistic system in order to find your approval before God. He's simply saying, now that you are Christians, don't turn back again to those principles. And so he's saying that those principles were right for a season, but they're no longer helpful There were only shadows. By the way, the Sabbath, all the dietary restrictions and all the feasts, those were only shadows of what was to come. And what was to come was Christ. And when Christ came, he he brings the substance of new life through faith and not through walking in obedience to the old covenant. And Paul says it this way in Colossians 2, 16 and 17, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival of a new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Shadows belong to rituals. Substance belongs to Christ. Shadows is everything that's secondary and tertiary. Gospel truth is primary. And he's fighting for gospel truths. Paul saying you don't have to observe one day is better than another because every day is a special day of rest because of the finished work of Christ. Every day is to be a day of worship. Every day is to be a day of ministry. And then he says, but let each person be convinced in his own mind. 
In other words, God has to bring you to this conviction in time. Don't just do it because I'm saying it to you. Let the Spirit of God work in your heart through the Word of God as you study God's Word and the principles contained in God's Word that would then give you that place of freedom and release to practice your faith under the new covenant. And then in verse 6, he says, your next blank, exercise your liberties by honoring God and giving thanks. The one who observes the day observes it in the honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in the honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. Again, whether you observe a special day of worship or not, whether you eat a certain food or not, enjoy the liberty that God has given you by giving honor and thanks to the Lord. It's exactly what 1 Corinthians 10 31 says. If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Same context about eating meat, sacrifice to idols, that you would do what you do to the glory of God. You shouldn't be judged if you do. You shouldn't be judged if you don't. Whatever you choose, you do it in the area of Christian liberties and you should not be denounced for it. But you should do it with a thankful heart. You should do it with an idea of I'm doing this as unto the glory of God, not of myself. And whatever you're doing, you're giving thanks to God and you're glorifying Him. That's your attitude. Your your Christian liberty is never like, I'm going to do this just because I want to. And I don't care what anybody else thinks. This is my right. As soon as you start going down that path, you're being selfish. You're not considering others and you're demanding what you want. So you always have to be careful like, hey, I could take it or leave it. I could eat it or not eat it. I could drink it or not drink it. I could wear my mask or not wear my mask. I could do whatever I want to do in a way that would make sure I'm loving God and loving my neighbor because at the end of the day, I'm trying to love people and give them liberty, not say you have to do a certain thing a certain way. And so some people can be very particular about certain things, whether it was Christians of the first century over food or ceremonial worship or Christians today who have strong preferences about alcohol or about wearing a mask or about one of many other uh, freedoms that we have, the point is do what you do with a thankful heart to glorify God. And then he transitions to that thought there in verses 7 through 9, your next blank, give to the Lord, uh, live to the Lord in all that you do. Verses 7 to 9, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For it is this end, Christ died and lived again, that we might be, uh, but that we might uh, be Lord, that He might be Lord, both over the dead and the living. And so, all these verses are saying is that you do what you want before the Lord. As a Christian, you don't live or die to yourself; you live and die before God. And when you die, you belong to God. And whether you live or die, you belong to the Lord. And so you live your life knowing that you're accountable to Him. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10 says, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. So that's why Christ died. Christ died that we could be free to live for Him. Christ died to set us free of our punishment, to set us free of hell, 
to set us free of the power of sin, of any enslavement. Christ died and was raised from the dead so that you might have eternal life. He is the Lord of both the living and the dead. And if you are in Christ this morning, he is Lord over your preferences and he's Lord over your particulars. And he wants to use your liberties in a way that would glorify God. And when you die, hopefully you're dying with a clear conscience, knowing that when it comes to Christian liberties, your heart and your soul belong to Christ. And so we are to love the weaker brother. We are to love the particular brother. And then lastly, we're to love not to pass judgment on your brother. You're to love not to pass judgment. Your next blank says, do not pass judgment or despise your brother. Verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And so verse 10 is a rebuke. In light of verses 1 through 9, why should you pass judgment on your brother? We are to hold our brother accountable? Yes. Are we to lovingly admonish your brother when needed? Yes. Are we to challenge our brother's brother's thinking with Scripture to sharpen one another? Yes. But we are not to pass judgment on one another in the area of Christian liberties. That's God's job. God is the one who will stand before on that final day, which is why 1 Corinthians 3, 13 through 15 says, each one's work will be manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself is saved, but only as through fire. So first of all, God will determine if you're saved or not. Second of all, God will determine the motives and the ambitions of your hearts And he will reward anything that is built on a solid foundation. And anything done out of fluff will be consumed by the fire. You know what I think? I think Christian liberties are fluff. Christian liberties are wood, hay, and stubble. God doesn't care whether you practice certain liberties or whether you don't because those things don't matter to him near as much as that you have a loving heart for him and for your neighbor. And so understand all of that stuff is going to be consumed anyway and yet we spend an awful lot of time talking about small fish and dealing with what we think and we get very passionate and emboldened about superficial things. And I'm trying to just caution you today to realize, you know what, none of that stuff matters, which is why I've been saying from day one of this quarantine, let's keep loving God, loving people. I'm going to preach the word, Whether, however we do that, we do that. You come and listen, you apply it to your life, you love people with all of your heart, because one day, your last blank says, each of us will give an account before God. Verses 11 and 12, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. So Paul here quoting from Isaiah 45 and Isaiah 49. We also hear this in Philippians 2, 10, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. You want to know what matters? At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven, on earth, and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. At the end of time, every knee shall bow before the living God, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
And so each one of us will give an account of ourselves before God. Ultimately, we answer to the Lord, not to each other. In the words of a well-known commentary, quote, our responsibility is not to judge, to despise, to criticize, or in any way to belittle our brothers and sisters in Christ. We will be called on by our Lord to give an account, not for the shortcomings and the sins of others, but rather each one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Let me encourage you as a church to practice your liberties with thankful hearts and to the glory of God, that we would welcome the weak brother, that we would never flaunt our liberties, and that you would realize that one day you will stand before God to give an account, which is why it's so important that you be convinced in your own mind from Scripture what God would allow you to do and what God would not prefer for you to do based on the way you understand these principles. Let me encourage you to have a healthy, vibrant conversation about this over lunch. There's a couple of questions there in the take-home section of your, of, your, uh, of your outline. Next week, we'll wrap up chapter 14 of Romans and probably bring this little series to a close. I hope that it's been fit, uh, fruitful for you as you consider some of these things. I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to prepare our hearts to now to partake in the Lord's Supper. Bow your heads with me in prayer. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to be uh, taught from your word today about the issue of Christian liberties. God, we want to make sure that we're being faithful to consider the importance of these principles. We don't want to flaunt our liberties. We don't want to make fun of those who practice certain liberties or don't practice certain liberties. We want to love Christ with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We know that we're different people, but I pray that you would help us to welcome each other in love and that we would appreciate one another. And as we examine your word, God, that we would just be filled with your truth and with a, a healthy desire to magnify Christ in all things. And so God, just help us today as we sing a couple of verses, as we partake in the Lord's Supper, that Christ would be glorified in our time together. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.